You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The public radio program that chronicles personal conversations between two close relatives or acquaintances, StoryCorps, was in Detroit this summer working with WDET. I went over to their Airstream trailer recording booth at the DIA with my friend Nolan Finley. Nolan is my counterpart with the editorial team at the Detroit News, as I am the editorial page editor at the Detroit Free Press. He also has a much different perspective on politics and policy than I do. Part of that is because of where we come from. I was born and raised here in Detroit. He was raised in rural Kentucky and then later moved to Detroit. We decided to sit down and talk about how we came to view the world the way we do and how we became friends. The reason I wanted us to do this was because I'm the editorial page editor of the Detroit Free Press and you are the editorial page editor of the Detroit News, two newspapers that consider themselves rivals uh, uh, in terms of business and readership, but whose editorial pages also consider themselves uh, rivals in terms of uh, political out, view, outlook, uh, viewpoint, things like that. We sit uh, at the Free Press pretty firmly on the left side of the political spectrum. Uh, we would consider ourselves progressives. And I'll let you describe how yeah. you see yourselves at the news. Well, we're traditional conservatives, and uh, we sit right center in in our operation. And I think both of us... Uh, are carrying on traditions at our newspapers that go back well over 100 years. That's really true. We started as a conservative newspaper. You started as a progressive newspaper. We've held our uh, philosophical position uh, through many editorial page editors and many decades. And I feel, uh, and I, as I know you do, Steve, a obligation to that history and to our readers. Our yeah. readers come to expect those views from us. And, you know, my ideal hope is always that people read both newspapers well, and sort of compare and contrast. Especially in the current business yes, environment. Yes. We really need readers, right? Yeah. Well, I, I hope <laughs> they read both newspapers and compare and contrast and say, okay, we've heard from this side and that side. Yeah. Now we'll, we'll decide where we're at. I think too often today people are comfortable only reading the views they agree sure. with. Yeah. And I get very... You know, I, I take it personally when somebody sort of emails me and, and and bad, you know, bad mouths you in the free press. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, I've always approached this job as I may be wrong. Right. I think I'm right. Right. But I sure want to hear the other side of the argument. It ought to be a conversation, yes. an ongoing right. conversation and debate. Uh, of course, at the Free Press, like you said, there's a lot of history behind the the, the reasons that we are a progressive paper. We did, actually did not start out as a progressive newspaper. Really? We started out as an anti-abolitionist newspaper in oh the 1830s. Uh, there were some pretty racist uh, people who started the Free Press as a way to push back against the abolitionist movement to try to keep the North out of the war, in fact, uh, uh, from from forcing the South to, to change. Uh, it was a pretty conservative paper up through the, the 40s, I think, when the, really? Knight, when the Knight brothers came to Detroit uh, from Akron and bought the paper. I think for forty thousand dollars cash, wow. uh, and and started. Uh, That's a your pretty, lunch budget. Yeah, man. right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and they started a, a leftward tilt, but but certainly, at this point, I am you know inheriting a mantle that goes back a, a, a long really time. long time, and I don't feel I don't feel like. That's mine to change in no, any in any uh, dramatic way. Nor do I. I mean, we started out as a, as a populist newspaper, part of the Penny Press, but we very quickly evolved into a pro business. That yeah. was our our sort of our mantle. We were pro business uh, newspaper, and that's sort of the the core of conservatism from that in that traditional sense. That was well before the you know, sort of social conservative movement. And I've read, you know, I've read the Detroit News's position stated by various editorial right. pages over the decades. And, you know, they were pretty, pretty clear that we are a conserv an economically conservative newspaper, pro-business newspaper, but really, really don't care what you do in your personal life. Right. And, uh, <laughs> right. and right. also supported and, and, you know, supported, um, 
fairness and equality and some of the social movements of the time. I mean, we weren't always exactly where perhaps we would be today and look, you know, if if we had, uh, if we were coming at it from today's viewpoint, but we were always sort of stand up for the, you know, people who were getting the shaft. And I think that was a good balance. And and to me, that's what conservatism means and ought to look like, I've tried to return us a bit to that that place without um, without abandoning our conservative economic principles. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the other reason I wanted us to talk is, is that, uh, you know, uh, despite these differences, despite us sitting on the opposite sides of the political fence, uh, working for rival newspapers, you and I are pretty close friends. Yeah, we respect each other. Yeah, we we socialize together. Uh, we we work together in other yeah. forums on television and on uh, radio occasionally. Uh, and I wanted us to talk about uh, – first of all, talk about how that relationship works in, in a modern context where – uh, there aren't a whole lot of relationships like that, I think, uh, yeah. or at least they're dwindling. Uh, but I also wanted us to talk about how we got to these spaces uh, and talk a little about our histories, how we grew up, where we grew up. Personal. Yeah. yeah. And and what made us believe the things that we do. Uh, as we go on in the conversation, it'll become obvious that that I think that we come from pretty similar backgrounds. We have some really common experiences mm-hmm. between the two of us, and yet we and some different ones. Yeah, and I mean, some, some different ones. Different yeah, ones. Uh, and yet we we see things really differently. Uh, those experiences, even the common ones, have not led us to the same intellectual space in terms of in terms of politics. Right. Uh, and, and I think right. that's a really interesting difference. It's, I think it's one of the things that, that helps explain why it's okay to, to be a conservative or uh, a progressive and, uh, and not feel as though the person who's sitting across from you, the person who is on the other <laughs> side of the fence kind of free, is yeah. right. Like, where did this person yeah. come from? I think in, in some cases, common experiences yield different outcomes, different outlooks. And I think that's okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'll start with that. Yeah. Then. I mean, I, I was, you know, I came into this world with some pretty harsh circumstances. I was born in Burksville, Kentucky, which is in the foothills of the Appalachians. Uh, no hospital. I was born in a doctor's office, taken home right away to a I, the only way I can ex- can describe it is a three-room shack, and I keep a painting of it, a photograph of it, on the wall of my office just to remind me of how humble it was. We didn't have running water. Um, my mother nearly died after she got home because of the conditions she went home to. But I was fortunate to be born to parents. Neither one of them had a high school education. Uh, in my family, I was the first one to get a high school diploma. You hear people talking about being the first to get a college degree. I was the first one to complete high school and and just barely. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, they were people who, given where they came from, knew nothing but hard work. My parents worked every day of their lives. They worked when we were there. They worked when we came up here. And we came up here to Blue Collar Suburb of Garden City. They immediately started factory jobs. My dad did. That's what brought them north, correct? They did. Oh, yes. That opportunity, the idea of opportunity. And it was a hard leave, you know, because that's such a different world. And uh, But they wanted opportunity, and, and there was none there. And so... You know, all of their brothers and sisters did the same thing, went to industrial cities of the north or some in in the south, but mostly in the north. And, uh, you know, it was all all I ever remember my parents is work. They worked, 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 worked. And so that shaped me in terms of how do you get ahead in life? You work. And, you know, (laughs) I went to work in a factory when I was in high school, my 11th grade year of high school. I would punch out at or of school at 2.30, punch in the factory at 4, work to midnight, and start all over again. So it was, to me, my experience, my personal experience is, and I know this isn't everyone's, but mine is, if you work and you work really hard, you can succeed. And you can't succeed without it. Yeah. And I've always sort of been felt chased by the wolf, you know, <laughs> that if I slow down, if I stop, you know, we're not that 
one generation is not that far from the place where we came from. Right. And so how does that leave you then to be to, to lean conservative in terms of, of your politics? What, what, what about conservatism uh, r- r- sort of picks up on where you're from? Well, being from, you know, being from that part of the South, um, very fiercely individual place. I mean, the Scotch-Irish, very fiercely independent place. They're very strong individuals mm-hmm. and they don't like to be meddled with <laughs> and they they don't and that's the way I grew up you know I don't I didn't grow up with a great trust of the government and I was there during the great society years and the, and Lyndon Johnson and his programs did some good things in the rural south sure but they also did some some bad things in terms of establishing a culture of dependency and destroying individual initiative. I remember, you know, during that period, how, you know, suddenly how hard it was to hire farm labor. And that's when people started going to migrant workers and what have you, because a couple hundred bucks in your pocket and what you can make, you know, here and there on the side. And too many people were content with that. And I I believe those programs destroyed, destroyed individual initiative. And I think there's nothing more powerful than an empowered individual. I think people, when left alone, will make the right decisions uh, for themselves and their families. And, and you know, that's, that's my experience. That's yeah. my um, background. And that's what I saw. Um, I'm not opposed to programs that help people. I think we've not thought enough over the years of how to do it without destroying the individual without making the individual a ward of the state. Yeah. So so my background's a little different, of course, and somewhat mm-hmm. similar to that. Uh, my family came to Detroit before I was born uh, in 1957. Uh, my grandfather, who also uh, never graduated high school, uh, was working, at, got work as an auto worker in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Um and, they come up from the south at one point. Yeah, right. He uh, Valdosta, Georgia, was mm-hmm. where he was born. Uh, his family moves to Cincinnati when he's, I think, a teenager. Uh, he gets a job in the factory uh, there. Uh, rises through the ranks uh, of the union, which is the only reason, in yeah. fact, he's allowed to work. Uh, in those auto plants as an African-American man uh, at the point at which he comes to Cincinnati. It's the union that gets him involved. He rises through the ranks of the union to become uh, a pretty close friend and aide uh, to Walter Ruther, who started the UAW. Walter Ruther decides that he needs my grandfather here in Detroit to help the union uh, Mm -hmm. uh, cultivate uh, the, the the sort of rise of African American political aspiration uh, in the city uh, to help organize and and sort of figure out how the union's going to play a role in all of that. Um, so he does that, and by the time I'm born, uh, it's a pretty middle class family. Uh, he's sending his children to college uh, at that point. My mother and her siblings. Uh, all went to to, to college, uh, and I'm born into a family. My mom and my dad were were both uh, professionals uh, mm-hmm. at the time uh, I was born. When my parents divorced, uh, uh, things got a little tighter for yeah. my mom, uh, and uh, for a long time, in fact, things were really tight, and and she had to make a lot of choices about what to spend her money on. Mm-hmm. Do you buy a house? Or do you send your kids to a better school than Detroit Public Schools, right. which were already in in uh, in tough shape? And so we lived in a housing project for seven years, so that she could uh, she could have money enough money to send us to a better school than the school around the corner. Um, and so when I think of home, I think uh, in a lot of ways of that housing project, uh, yeah. which is still right down here on uh, on East Lafayette, mm. uh, here in the city of Detroit, and so. I remember what that was like to to see families living in in some poverty. I mean, we weren't we weren't as poor as everybody else there, uh, but but there were families who had almost nothing, who uh, who had to depend on the government programs, some of them, in order to to eat every day, let alone uh, try to get out. 
But there was this sense of opportunity. There was this sense of moving forward. I think uh, it's fair to say that most people who lived in that circumstance wanted something better for themselves right. and were working to get it. Uh, uh, a lot of the people I knew uh, who lived there are now themselves professionals. The kids I grew up with in that uh, in that housing project, they got out through education. Right. And that was the way, you know, we, we focused on it. That was what my mom was focused on. Send my kids to a good school, they'll have better opportunity. I think what, what makes me uh, a progressive is in large measure sort of the history of that progress, particularly that progress for African-American mm-hmm. people in uh, the United States, that it was progressive movements and progressive politicians, whether they be Democrats or Republicans. I mean, and we can talk for hours about the roles that the different parties have played at different times in that struggle. But there was also there was always a progressive minded uh, movement behind the progress for African-Americans, the progress for women. You know, I grew up in a, a household where my mom was the head of household and opportunities that she had to work and to move ahead at work were about uh, the feminist movement and and insisting that women be treated the same and given the same opportunities. And, you know, how about we pay them the same? Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these ideas are rooted in Progressive thought and, for me, also rooted in some religious thought. Uh, I, I was educated here in the city by first the Quakers uh, at, at Friends School here and then by the Jesuits at uh, U of D Jesuit High School. I always make a joke. I say, you know, I was educated by both the Quakers and the Jesuits and I'm not a <laughs> schizophrenic <laughs> uh, because you could be. Yes. Uh, but, but what they had in common was this sense that um, – that the belief in uh, spirituality uh, that comes either out of the Bible or the sense of connectedness among human beings is to expand opportunity, to treat people justly and fairly, uh, and to strive for equality and to serve others. Uh, and I've always associated those with progressive ideals. Uh, no, I understand uh, that. I mean, with, with me, you know, coming out, of small rural South community, mm-hmm. we took care of our own. We took care of each other, and we were very suspicious, as I said of government. before, yeah. of government and outsiders. We also believed as farmers in the marketplace, even though nobody gets screwed over by the marketplace more than farmers. <laughs> um, but we believe I mean, we considered ourselves business people, I right. guess, some right. small business people, and you know we. We owned what we owned, so we were fiercely protective of property rights. Our land was all we had. And I'm from a part of the state where, you know, a lot of small farms, even poor people owned a little plot uh, of land. It was subsistence farms, but it was enough to feed your family. It was enough to get by. And so we didn't want anyone telling us how to use our land, uh, what we could do on it. Uh, we didn't want anybody encroaching on it. So property rights became, was, it was, it was very um, paramount yeah. to us. And this, I, this belief in that the marketplace works, and I still believe that. I think the marketplace can be, the free market can be messy, but I think it's a more, it's the most efficient regulator. I think eventually it gets to the place it needs to do, and it's also the um, greatest generator of opportunity for individuals. And, uh, you know, one thing I, I can say about the time I spent on the farm was you certainly learned how many different ways you can make money off your own <laughs> initiative <laughs> because, you know, we were, it was a farm where, you know, you, you milked a cow and you sold a milk, you sold a pig, you could, you know, you raised a crop, you sold that. There was that connection between, you know, just like any small business person, that connection between your effort and your income yeah. was, was, was very clear. Coming up next, we're going to hear more of my conversation with Detroit News editorial page editor Nolan Finley.
My name is Chris Harrington. I am the managing director and curator of The Cube and the DSO's Paradise Jazz series. Underwriting is more than the 15 or 30 second spot that you hear on air. I view underwriting as a strategic partnership with this great radio station. It really gives us an opportunity to connect with their unique listeners and to inform them about some of the exciting and diverse programming we have at Orchestra Hall and in The Cube. If you are interested in marketing your company with WDET, contact Michael Perkins at 313-577-5855. WDET is supported by Live Nation, presenting the Chick Corea Electric Band and Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, joining forces for their first co-headlining performance, Saturday, August 12th at the Michigan Lottery Amphitheater at Freedom Hill. Tickets are still available at livenation.com. You're listening to Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson. Here's more from my StoryCorps conversation with Nolan Finley. So what, what is interesting to me, again, is this idea of the common sort of experience. And, and there's some mm-hmm. common themes in what we're talking about. Hard work, opportunity. Parents who sacrificed. Parents who sacrificed. Uh, and yet we still sort of come to this different this different political space. Uh, mm-hmm. One thing I think is, is that is different is this idea of the market. Uh, as as the sort of ultimate and most efficient mm-hmm. regulator of of things, of course, the market for people who look like me has always played a little bit of it's a true. different role. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if if the market were winning, for instance, we would not have had Jim Crow for a hundred years. No. Right? it was the the most inefficient system where you're locking an entire class of people out. Of um, and it, you know of and, equality, but it, by the way, that also hurt the market and continues to hurt it did. the the economy. It, I mean, it still does. And as a conservative, people sometimes ask me, "Well, you know, I'm you're all for affirmative action and inclusion programs and trying to make sure African Americans share in what's going on in Detroit." I feel like that's a conservative position because sh- creating a a Permanent underclass. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not good for it's the economy. It's against the market. It's uh, against the market. It costs. You're spending money inefficiently. Then you're spending money to you. You're forced to to maintain people at this basic level, rather than having them participate in a market where they're contributing, right. spending, buying. Uh, you know, I think that those sort of racial exclusion. Uh, policies and attitudes are horribly anti-free free market. You right. want everybody to participate. You want everybody seeing and believing they can get ahead because what happens when they believe that? They work harder. They right. produce more. Right. And so I, I think racism was the most, is the most anti-market force in America. Yeah. And yet we have this ongoing discussion in this country mm-hmm. about race, especially right yeah. now, and the the role it continues to play. And I think most people would say that it's conservatives on the conservative side of the spectrum who stand in the way of the progress we still need to make. How do you how do you well, answer that? I Maybe say, not conservatives like you, but certainly no, but conservatives I, in the I, Republican I, Party. I'm fairly, you know, mainstream conservative. I I, I think we would see it at the we would see the subtle racism in keeping people and the keep keeping people dependent and sort of um, discouraging them from being what they can be. I believe economic empowerment is the answer to most of our societal ills, including racism. You allow people to work, make money, take care of their own selves and their own families. They can say F you to the races. <laughs> you know, it's when they're downtrodden and have no power and no um, recourse against the people who are keeping them down. Um, that's when they, uh, you know, I, I, th- I think that's when they're the most vulnerable yeah. um, to racism and racist. And I won't um, sit here with any credibility and deny a lot of conservatives have been on the wrong side of racial issues. But that's not where the movement comes from. I think there's been a lot of folks have hijacked conservatism for their own agendas and their own purposes. And there is intolerance in the movement. I won't deny that. I've seen it myself, you know, but I still think if we can get it right, 
it's the best answer for the country. Yeah. So so let's talk about dialogue, mm-hmm. which is another thing that, that I think sort of marks this relationship in a way that's a little different than uh, than other people who see uh, – who look across the political spectrum. You and I are able to have this conversation. Uh, we're not punching each other. No. We're not, <laughs> we're not going to go and uh, smear each other on Facebook tonight or on Twitter, call each other names when we appear on television or radio together. Eh, we might di- we might disagree bitterly, right? Oh, I mean, it, doesn't, it never yeah. means that, that we don't – uh, get into a it, bit. yeah, right. I mean, we get after each other, we but, like scrapping. but it's not. It's never a, a dis. It's never driven by a disrespect, no, uh, or a hatred, or a hatred. Um, and that's that's a rare space right but now, and it's it. rarer even given our positions. Right? I mean, our papers are supposed to hate each other. <laughs> we're supposed well, to be on the other. Uh, you know, yeah, want the other's demise. We're competitive, and I think you yeah. and I are competitive, yeah. and the papers are, and they should be, but. I would attribute it to, I think both of us feel the same way. I want to read and listen to things I don't I don't learn a thing from people who think exactly well, like me. Right. And I, the one thing I'm worried about today where people sort of group and cluster with like-minded folks, what do you learn? You know, I learn, I mean, it doesn't mean I agree, but I learn from reading people who disagree. I disagree. Right. People like yourself whom, I, you know, I'm a tremendous fan of your writing and I enjoy your writing. And so I read it and I might say, hmm, well, Steve's wrong here, here and here, <laughs> but well argued, well stated. And by the way, he's right here and here. And I hadn't thought of that. Right. And right. so, you know, you, you, you can't close your mind and get comfortable. Well, and I've described it before. I can't remember where I did it. I had to write something once about about you and our relationship. We might have been for the, the forward of your yes, book. Yes, that was excellent. Um, uh, where I said, I feel like that keeps us honest. Your presence uh, yes. in the city, even though I think you're wrong about an awful lot of things. Yeah, vice versa. It, it, it keeps us honest. It, it says, here's the other point of view. Right. And if you're not looking out for that, if you don't know what that is, if you don't really understand what the arguments are, uh, you you could get caught short uh, in your own arguments. You're not really thinking as much about why you believe what you believe and putting together arguments that sort of uh, sweep up the sum total yeah. of uh, uh, of that knowledge. Keeps you sharper. Uh, into into the, your your own your but, own uh, your own debate. And there's also a bit of survival in, in it too. I mean, this town would not have two newspapers if they were both from the same point of view. Right. I mean, there's no reason for two liberal newspapers to <laughs> exist in this town or two conservative. And oftentimes people in the newsroom don't understand that. They, oh, gosh, that conservative editor. <laughs> that, the, their jobs wouldn't be here and their livelihood wouldn't be here if we didn't strike a conservative position against your progressive position. That's what the whole point of the, the joint operating agreement was. Right. And I think it still works. And, and we are one of the few places in the country where you have two strong newspapers with two opposing views. Most one newspaper p- towns stick it very safely in the middle, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so tell me what you think. If you look at progressives mm-hmm. like me in, the, in, in today's debates, in today's political arguments, what are we missing from your point of view? What are the things that we do or say or believe that says to you, well, I can't, I can't get on board with that? Well, I think, it's, uh, I think progressives are slow to learn from their mistakes. This program didn't work, so the answer is not trying something different. To double it's down double on down it. on this yeah. program. And I think we've seen that. We see that in the Obamacare debate today. We've seen it across the board with this, with job training programs and other programs. And, you know, it's not that I would say, well, I'm against those programs. I'd like those programs to work. And I think judging those programs on their performance is, is not a unfair ask. And I think... You feel progressives like progressives too, don't do that. I think progressives are too slow to admit something's not working and ch- and so let's change it and maybe we change it and try something you know we didn't think would work but right. we'll give it a chance and you might say the same thing conservatives but you know that's what i see um on yeah on i don't know if i would have the, i don't know if i'd have the same 
criticism of conservatives because actually one of the things I, I sort of admire about conservatism is the daring part of it, right? Yeah. So, so for instance, uh, in, in the school debates that we yeah. have mm-hmm. right now about uh, how to fix public education in the country, uh, you know, conservatives are, are the ones who are pushing these innovative models, these really different ways of thinking about it that, that go beyond – you know the old public school structure, and say, well, what if we tried? What if we tried it this way? What would right. happen? And and sometimes I'm a little a little jealous even mm-hmm. of that spirit. Now, the criticism I'd have of it is that it's it's too experimental and it's too driven by uh, business and profit, and that the, the idea that that the profit motive in the market solve every problem, and in, and in education in particular. Uh, you know, I understand that how difficult and expensive it is to deal with uh, student populations who come from abject poverty and, and particularly in large numbers. And so this I, I feel like the ideal on the conservative side always wins out that the market's right and that uh, you, you don't want regulation instead of looking at, well, as a practical matter – you do need uh, government to, to to do things that people that the market would never would never incentivize. Uh, educating the poorest kids uh, yeah. in large numbers, you're never going to make money off of that. And so, uh, one of the reasons I don't consider myself a conservative is that safeguarding of the vulnerable. That that I think uh, I, I guess I would prioritize over. Free market principles. See, I think the profit motive brings accountability. But beyond that, one of my um, complaints against conservatives in terms of education is their failure to recognize that all, not all children are created equal. Right. And this idea that if we just, you know, whip the teachers a little harder and we whip the unions a little harder, and, and believe me, I think the unions have caused a lot of yeah, problems. You're not in a fan of the unions, right? And, um, you know, we'll produce the same results in Detroit that we do in Troy or, or Gross Point or Birmingham. In wealthy suburbs, And I yeah. think there's got to be some recognitions. And I guess, you know, I would go back to my background. You know, I know what it was like for me to go to school with parents who had no clue sure. about what education was all about and were so consumed with survival. They did the best they could with us, but nobody was pushing me to go to college. My dad's highest aspiration for me, and God bless him, was to be a plumber because yeah. that was a trade he <laughs> recognized. Money, right? And he saw that was his idea of success as a guy who just worked in menial flat factory jobs. Yeah. That was his idea. And so this this notion that all kids come to school as blank, the same blank canvas. It's it's just not true. One of the things I fault Governor Snyder and the Republican legislation who've controlled things here for years is they didn't have the courage to do exactly what you lauded him for, and that is blow up the system in Michigan and make this the innovation capital of the of the country in terms of, of education. Bring in the smartest people, the best innovators, and then give them the assignment of crafting education policy for not for, for not across the board, but that meets the needs of the various pockets yeah. uh, of but our But the reason that they state. but the reason they can't do that, I always say, is because that's unprofitable. And it would be unprofitable. It would be unprofitable in the short term, right? You would have no. to spend a lot more money. You spend a lot more money, but you get better You'd results. save in the long run. I think it's political for... courage. I think they just didn't have they just didn't have the courage to sell it to voters who yeah. who love their failing schools across this state. Sure. People who think education problem in Michigan is just an urban problem haven't looked at the numbers. <laughs> right? I mean, our Non-poor white students in Michigan score 48th in the nation. Right. I mean, that's that right. is these are kids shocking. in in these in, are kids from good circumstances. Yeah. Right. So I would have liked to seen them blow everything up and say, okay, we're going to bring in schools that work in the city, a different set that work in rural Michigan, a different set that work in in suburban in, in, in Michigan, and we're going to try to give each of these communities the right. Mix What's the right of fit? schools and yeah. education. We, I don't know what it is, but I think if we'd have had the courage to say, "This is what we're going to do. We're going to bring in the smartest people yeah. and put them to work here," and you know, we're going to blow everything up. Yeah. We're going to reward great teachers with great pay. Um, 
you know, we're going to have the best teacher colleges in, in the country. We could have done that over this seven and a half, six and a half years that we've had that control, yeah. and we didn't do it. Yeah. Uh, and I guess my, my other criticism of conservatism is that inability or unwillingness, I guess, to, to recognize that history and the weight of history still matters today. The, the idea that people were brought to this country uh, as slaves, the idea that people were locked out of opportunity by the law and by private industry for a hundred years after that ended, uh, those things just weren't wiped away by the changes that we saw in law and and in the in the 1960s and that we are starting to see over practice right since the sure. 1960s i feel like people are moving more to that space i feel like conservatives want to say well that's in the past we can just act as if uh, everybody's equal now and we're well all good. i think there is that sentiment but i also think there's a strong belief that if we create broad economic opportunity we can heal a lot of those ills, um, even if we don't necessarily understand the experiences, that if we create broad economic opportunity, and I think that is a noble motive. I you know, know that we've gotten there yet, but I still think that is the goal. And, you know, I would say of liberals or progressives that one of the things that, you know, when I, when I look at them, I think mm-hmm. there's a certain belligerence among conservatives. And I think there's a certain, a, a very much a smugness among liberals, <laughs> this idea that they're the only ones that talk to God and that... Well, we because, are. I mean. <laughs> but, but it breeds an intolerance and also a, a, a unique kind of sense of privilege that because we're right, we can trample your rights right. because we're right. We can shout you down or we can sit on your property or deny you the right to speak or act the way, you know, your constitution guarantees you. And I think there's th- that growing feeling we're seeing on campuses that because we're so, we're so positive, we're right. We can, we don't have to account for you at all. Right. right? Yeah. Well, we don't have to respect you or respect yeah. your rights. I don't see you think you, I think you see that same conviction that you're right on the conservative side. I don't think it manifests itself so much uh, in the form of, well, then we can do anything we want. Right. The end justifies the means. <laughs> right. So so we've got like uh, five minutes left. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we heal this? Other than putting the two of us in charge and letting us oh, run yeah. everything, which I think uh, is not a bad idea. Uh, how, how, do you get, how do you get people to see that, okay, the other side may not see things the way I do. They may not come from where I come from, but they got some ideas that I ought to think about uh, and and maybe incorporate into my own so that I can appeal to them as well as the people who agree right. with me. I don't know because we're not moving in that direction. It's moving the opposite it's direction moving the opposite right opposite now. Way. I don't want everybody to think alike. You know, I'll no, state that. I don't I want that tension that comes from um, disagreement and the whole process of talking things out when in in its, its perfect form leads to better solutions mm-hmm. and i'm distressed by this the fact that compromise has become such a poisonous word on both sides yes. now um you know you had republicans for years saying well we're not we're just going to say no now you have democrats saying i don't care what the idea is we're not giving them a single victory <laughs> that's not healthy that's not, and we we as americans pick it up in our own rhetoric and i don't i don't think we're moving in in the right direction um and i wish i had an answer but yeah, i know I it's one I of the things too. that distresses me the most that we can't seem to everybody's got to have 100 percent. you know i remember talking to john engler years ago and he said you know if i can get 70 75 percent republican governor here yeah, in michigan yeah i'm gonna grab it yeah you know and now you've got people from his same party who's saying I can't get 100%. I'm sitting down. Right. Won't even compromise with my own party, let alone across the aisle. And you see the same thing on the other side. There's this so, this, this so ingrained belief. Everyone wants to vanquish yeah, the other side. Yeah, that if we give you anything, we may never get the power back. And I think it's all become more less about principles amongst in our political parties and more about power and partisanship. Yeah. I don't think you have 
Um, I have, a, have an intern who wrote a young girl from Hillsdale. She's 19 year old. I thought she put it perfectly. She said, look, we're coming up. We're trained to be conservatives and we believe in that. We don't care about partisanship. And so if all you preach to us is partisanship over principle, you're going to lose us. Yeah. And I don't know where they're going to go, but I think that's true. And I think you see that in the Bernie Sanders movement. People want principle first. Yeah. And, right. um, and, and that's hard. That is hard. Yeah. Well, it's hard for the parties to deliver. I, I, I mean, I think one of the things that, that um, is a potential solve for this is exactly what we're doing here sitting and talking yeah. and talking not just about the things that are going on right now and what whether we agree or disagree with each other about it but why we think that way right what is what what's your experience that leads you to this com this this uh, this conclusion what's what is it about who you are that says you believe this and i think it's harder to paint somebody as a villain when you when you understand that, yeah. even if you still disagree with them, it's harder to to demonize people when you really do know who they are and what they think. I, I I'll tell you though, I mean, it's what's curious to me, what's what's fascinating to me is people come from the exact same set of yeah. <laughs> and come to different places. Yeah. I have a cousin, a first cousin. Uh, she was born a week after me. Um, she lived right next door to the next house up the road. We were close as, as can be and still are, and we're raised the exact same way. And she's now a, um, you know, she's, she, she went to Oberlin of all places, earned her PhD and is at the university of the South. And I mean, she went to bed for a month when Donald Trump was elected. And so, I mean, it's fascinating to me how we could come out of the same exact, you know, each other and And you still you have brothers and sisters in that situation so it's not all i mean there's a lot of individual in this it's not all experience but it's fascinating to explore how people got to there to where they are now that was detroit news editorial page editor nolan finley WDET is supported by New Center Park, offering a summer-long series of weekly movie nights, theater performances, and more. Information and schedule of activities may be found online at newcenterpark.com. That's newcenterpark.com. WDET, a reliable source of information in today's world. National Guardsmen were already patrolling the city. WKNR Assistant News Director Eric Smith recalls the scene. Here I am watching United States military tanks rumble down West Grand Boulevard in front of Henry Ford Hospital. That picture is indelibly impressed in my mind. Be a part of Team DET and help sustain news, culture, and community every day on 1019 WDET. WDET is supported by the Pony Ride Market, Saturday, August 12th from 10 to 6, featuring a performance by Neo Soul Musical Collective, Video 7, art by Abigail Lynch, and local makers with vintage, salvage, and handmade goods. More at PonyRideMarket.com. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. You may know StoryCorps as the personal conversations you hear on NPR on Fridays and find yourself tearing up a little in your car or at your desk. In practical terms, StoryCorps is housed in an Airstream trailer that tours around the country throughout the year and allows people to record intimate conversations with their loved ones. They are oral recorded histories that are archived at the Library of Congress in a large-scale human experiment. StoryCorps is bringing its Airstream trailer to Detroit on June 29th. It'll be parked outside of the DIA until the end of July. You can sign up to tell your stories with your loved ones by visiting WDET.org. Detroit Today producer Laura Weber-Davis recently spoke with Jordan Bullard, the associate director of the mobile tour for StoryCorps. Here's their conversation. 
That's that story core of choosing the communities you're going to take the uh, infamous Airstream trailer into. How do, you, how do you choose the cities or communities that you enter? Sure. So uh, the Airstream trailer is an RV. I mean, it does have a fancy recording studio on the inside, but it, in the end, it's it's only so insulated. So we have to be up north in the summertime and down south in the wintertime and <laughs> kind of in between in the spring and fall. So um, usually our yearly tours are kind of a parabola across the country. Stations reach out to us and say they want to work with us, or we reach out to stations um, and say, hey, we haven't been to Detroit in a, in a while. We'd love to work with you. Um, and we haven't been to Detroit since 2012, so we thought, you know, it's perfect perfect timing. Haven't been here for five years. There's been a lot that's been going on in this city. Probably due time for, for a return trip to Detroit. Are there specific stories that StoryCorps is looking for? I know that when we hear them on NPR, when they're played on NPR, you get a variety of stories from uh, people who are talking to their teachers or family members or somebody they work with. How do you find the people who end up coming to tell their stories? So, well, we find people in a, in a lot of different ways. We do outreach into the communities that we visit because we want to make sure that people who aren't familiar with public radio and who who maybe haven't heard of StoryCorps before, still are aware of this opportunity uh, to come in and record their story. Be- because in the end, we really want we want our visit to Detroit uh, to have an accurate and honest reflection of what life is like here. Obviously, you know, we have our dedicated NPR listeners who will probably know that, that we're coming to town there. They'll hear the promos um, and they'll be able to sign up for appointments that way. So that's Another way that we find folks to, to bring in to record their stories. But as far as the kind of stories we're looking for, it's an opportunity for folks to come in and talk with someone that is really important to them. Um, whether it's a close family member, maybe a spouse or a partner or a friend or a coworker, um, and, and talk about what's important in their lives. Yes, we are broadcast on the radio. A lot of people know about us through NPR, but at the core of what we do we're we're a public archive oral history project, and that that's really important to us. What is the sort of the mission of of StoryCorps as far as why hear these stories from everyday people and just any people? Well, I think you know the the mission of StoryCorps would you know it it, it is in an effort to create a a, a more sort of just society. I mean, on a very basic and general level. And I think for us, uh, in, in an effort to, to try to create that or, or to try to at least be a part of the effort in creating that, um, we're trying to just make sure that people get heard and have their voices heard. You know, there's so much, I feel like there's so much distortion nowadays in media in general about people's stories. And, and we don't get to know the real story of people who live in Detroit or people who live in Chicago, or people who live in all these other cities across the country, whether they're you know big cities like New York and L.A. on the coasts, or smaller cities throughout the the sort of the middle parts of the country, um, it's important to us from a mission standpoint to be able to offer this people uh, of all backgrounds um, and all walks of life, um, it, base, at the because basically you know we're all in this together, and it's all a part of us sort of promoting uh, a just society in the, in the United States. So you've traveled all over the country yourself, um, visiting lots of different radio stations and communities. What is it about Detroit that stands out to you just from your visit here that makes it sort of unique in the types of communities that you have seen throughout the country? Sure. I think, um, I mean, Detroit obviously is, uh, well, I'll, I'll back up by saying I try to have kind of a blank slate of, for, for all the cities I visit before I get there. And that was pretty much impossible to do with Detroit because the D- Detroit's been in the news for so many different reasons over the, over the course of the past several years. Um, but it's been really interesting visiting here and seeing how, obviously, Detroit has quite an uphill battle with a lot of different issues, but it, the community here still seems to be so strong. Um, and I've been trying to think of a lot of different sort of metaphors to describe Detroit. I don't really know that there is one. It kind of reminds me of, you know, like a a snake that's like halfway through shedding its skin before it's got its new skin on hmm. or something like that. Um, but, you know, to to see the locals care so much about their city 
um, and to be so thoughtful about the direction that their city is heading um, after some very tough years, to me, it's, you know, it, it's energizing to see this, this energy here in Detroit. And I don't want to say that other cities don't have that energy, but the sort of the, the amount of energy here, I think, is, is unique. And it's really cool to see how people rally around their city. Do you find that over the scope of visiting different communities and the scope of, you know, over over a long period of time, that there are sort of these through lines that you hear come through with every community that sort of speak to a common experience that we're all having as, as people in America? Or do you find that the stories really sort of change in tone depending on the region you are within the country? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I would say, I mean... I think the tone definitely changes. Um, there are certainly themes that are similar across the country and certainly across different regions. Um, and But I, I don't think that those necessarily make stories of a particular region or a particular city stand out. I think one of the things that StoryCorps is able to do is because we have that conversational model of two people coming in and having conversation with each other um, – is that it's not just a sort of narrative form. Um, it's not a narrative form story, or it's not right. just um, you know a, a talking head on on a news channel interviewing someone or yelling back and forth. It's it's a conversation, and basically, you know, in my mind, when you get right down to it, whether someone's telling a story about their life in Detroit, or if someone is telling a story about growing up in, you know, Jim Crow South or whatever that story might be. Basically, it's a recording of a relationship between two people. Um, and relationships are something that we all have. It's relatable across the board, um, regardless of what the sort of tone or the theme or subject matter of the story might be. That was my conversation with StoryCorps' Jordan Bullard. StoryCorps has left Detroit for now, but that doesn't mean you can't hear the stories that were recorded while they were here in the month of July. Here to talk a little bit about our podcast of those stories told is Laura Herberg, WDET's Laura Herberg. You've been putting together and going through some of the stories recorded while the Airstream trailer was here in Detroit. Yes, I have. And so... The cool part about this is it's not that we just have to wait and listen on NPR. You're actually putting them together for our very own podcast. Tell me just a little bit about how we can listen to some of the stories told here. Yeah, so wherever you get your podcasts, if you search StoryCorps Detroit, um, and StoryCorps, it's a little difficult to spell. It's StoryCorps, all one word, and core is spelled C-O-R-P-S. Then you'll find our podcast. And what it is, is it's the kind of stories that you hear broadcast nationally. But all these people recorded their stories in Detroit. And we're specifically highlighting stories that we think will resonate with our local audience. And can we hear it at WDET.org or find out more information? Yeah. We also, if you go to WDET.org slash StoryCorps, you can just stream it there. So if you're not into podcasting, you don't have to worry about all the fuss of that. And there is more information about StoryCorps' visit to Detroit online there as well. Thanks so much, Laura. I appreciate you coming in. Of course. My pleasure. That's going to do it for us at Detroit Today. We'll see you tomorrow. This is 1019 WDET Detroit. Detroit.